wrestling fans, this is Al Getz welcoming you to another episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. This episode is for June 2023, and we're going to be covering Jim Crockett promotions in 1971. Joining me as always is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how goes it? Hello, Al, and hello, listeners. I sound like Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. Just hello, hello. Yeah. So I'm well. All right. Do you, have, you? do you have a relative that works for the Parks Department? Not that I'm aware of. No, okay. no, 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 no. All right. No. A friend of my, a friend of my brother's, uh, when I was in high school, he was a few years older than me. A friend of my brother's worked for the Parks Department in uh, Great Neck, New York. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, but I always remember Uncle Leo talking about his, I guess, his son Jeffrey. Worked for, the, so well. worked for the Parks Department and also had impeccable handwriting. And him and his former college professor were pen pals later on in life. Huh. This is on the show, of course, not for real. Your cousin Jeffrey. Cousin Jeffrey. I don't have a cousin Jeffrey. I have a few cousins, but none named Jeffrey that I know of. Oh, so, But we are not charting the Seinfeld. <laughs> we are charting the territories. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at a year in the life of Jim Crockett Promotions for the year 1971. Now, uh, each month we sort of spotlight a different territory. And for the most part, they all have the same sort of, you know, vibe going on. However, there are a couple of things that set uh, JCP apart from other territories around this time. We're going to talk about some of those. We're also going to talk about one of the biggest stars in the history of the territory fading off into the sunset after one last run with the promotions tag team titles in 1971. We're also going to look at an unheralded tag team, and we'll talk about a former aristocrat and future campfire-sitting bunkhouse stampede rules explainer, (laughs) plus a whole lot more. But I want to start by uh, saying that my second book, the 1974 to 1976 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac is now available worldwide from Mm -hmm. Amazon. Uh, in addition, I am going to have some copies to sell uh, directly to consumers uh, through the website uh, in mid-June. I'm actually, the day we're recording this, I'm about to head to Las Vegas for a week. I think the books are going to arrive while I'm away. So, uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to have them for sale till I get back. But mid-June, if you want to put a little more money in my pocket and order directly from me instead of Amazon, you can hold off. Or if you want to go to Amazon, and the great thing about using Amazon's uh, print-on-demand is there's no international shipping. For our international listeners, you can go to your country's Amazon site Order the book and you'll get it, you know, in, in a couple of days. I believe uh, Chris Knights um, from WrestlingData.com lives in Germany and he got his uh, two days after the book came out. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really great and convenient uh, to order from Amazon or you can wait and order from me. So, John, you, um, as I believe I've mentioned, you have designed, you designed the cover. Uh, you took my original logo that was uh, designed by a fellow named Cody Wynn, and you sort of massaged it and tweaked it for the books. Mm, uh, you also awesome. did some proofreading on oh, yeah. this book. I don't know if you have it, if you have had a chance to actually read the finished product, but uh, what what were your thoughts? Because I think uh, my goal is to make every book a little bit better than the first one. I took a lot of feedback and suggestions from readers and, and, and whatnot. And I, I think I incorporated some of those suggestions into this book. 
I have not made it all the way through yet. Full full disclosure. It's 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 a, it's a long it's a long book. Al. It's a, yeah, it's long it's a long book. It's uh, three hundred and fourteen pages. The the first one was two hundred and thirty. Um, one of the big reasons for the increase in page count is because there are clippings yeah. in this book for the results for Love many the- of the shows in the key cities. We actually uh, printed the newspaper clippings uh, detailing the results from those cards. I love I love the addition of the clippings. Uh, the nice little nice little nice little visual, little salt and pepper there. It's great. I love it's it's such I ah it, 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 and your books are great. I don't know. I I feel like I'm really dumbing it down here, but they're just great. It's like I feel like you know when when DDP first had his yoga, this is like this isn't your this isn't this ain't your mama's yoga. This is this ain't your mama's wrestling result book because it's yeah. so much more than than the traditional. It's I don't I I mean I I envision a world where you know where somehow you're able to live you know to be 700 years old just a disembodied head it sounds a horrible clear, a clear a clear jar with liquid where you're able to create these books for every territory that has ever existed because there's really no better way to get a feel for a territory the ins and outs like you this is you get so much more than from your books than just the results you really get a feel for the ins and outs and who did what uh, and it's, I, I want one of these for every territory. And if you, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you need, you need these books. You, I, I, I don't know how, how else to say it. It's, yeah. The it's, first they're, one, they're, the first uh, one, which came out in October covered 1971 to 1973 in McGurk's territory. This one covers 74 through 76. And really it's a fascinating period of time for this territory because mm-hmm. it uh, goes through a down period and then goes through an up period with the return of a couple of wrestlers who had left in 1973. And uh, so it's it's a really fascinating look because you can look at the rosters year by year, month by month, and see what the roster looks like in 1974, who the top stars are, who the top tag teams are. And then a year later and two years later, it's completely different. And, and uh, whereas in 74, you have guys like Armand Hussein and Ken Mantell. Uh, and uh, the top tag teams are Jim White and Steve Lawler and Chief White Cloud and Chief Thundercloud. And then a couple of years later, you have Cox and Murdoch. You have uh, Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown. You have Watts coming back. Uh, you have Danny Hodge returning. All sorts of fascinating times. And of course, it also covers the last uh, matches in uh, the contiguous career of Danny Hodge, he um, retired, was forced to retire after his accident in 1976, although he would come back a few years later for a handful of matches. And it covers uh, the return of the cowboy and the build to the first ever show at the New Orleans Superdome, at the Superdome in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And that's covered in this book as well. So again, Amazon, uh, search for Charting the Territories, Al Getz. And uh, would love love for you to get the book if you haven't already. I would love to hear what you think about it. You can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling, or you can email me at chartingtheterritories at gmail.com with your feedback and any questions you might have. I was just going to say, if this, if this book has already not showed up in your Amazon recommendations, you are not buying the right books. <laughs> so make sure that book shows up there. There you That's go. Let's let's plug. let's tweak that algorithm. <laughs> the algorithm. Okay. As it were.
So on the podcast, uh, we're going to talk about JCP. Uh, and this in 1971, they were not called Mid Atlantic Wrestling. Uh, that came about as far as a trade name in 1973. However, I saw on Twitter last week someone posted a program from what had to have been 1971 based on the wrestlers that were there, and the program was titled Mid Atlantic Wrestling. Oh, interesting. Uh, but and it, and it didn't look like the normal programs I see from from the promotion. So I don't know if it was a, a you know a bootleg program or a fan or something they did for a special. But they may have used the name in passing before 1973. But it wasn't the name of the territory until 73. So we're going to talk about JCP in 71, and of course our regular features, including uh, this month I learned. John plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. And as always, we kick it off with Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. So, uh, I always say that this doesn't have to be wrestling-related. It can be really anything. Uh, John is authorized to spend up to $50 of my money buying me stuff off eBay. So, technically, this isn't a wrestling item. It's a football item. Mm Mm-hmm. But it is wrestling related. It's a uh, it's a 1967 Topps football card. And John, the card is of who? Wahoo! There you go. We have <laughs> a 1967 Topps Wahoo McDaniel card. This is from when he was with the Dolphins, which I believe was either the fourth or fifth team that he played for. Mm. I think it was the fourth team he played for, but the fifth team he was at one point signed to. Yeah, um, it and looks like he has a Jets jersey on still in this photo. Uh, you're correct. It's the green. It's that green yeah. Jets jersey. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So because he had played for the Jets for a few years, and then he went to Miami. So I, whatever the deadlines were for uh, submitting these things to get the cards all printed up, I guess they. Uh, at least he's not giving the finger uh, on the sly <laughs> like uh, the what was the guy from the Baltimore Orioles. Oh, is that, is that Billy Ripken? Billy something. Yes, Billy Ripken. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not doing anything like that. Uh, this card is uh, in a case and it's mm. it's graded by PSA. Now, don't get too excited because it's on a scale of one to ten. It's graded <laughs> a one point five. Not even a two. Alex. No, which means yeah. it's in fair condition. It definitely, you know, yeah. it's uh, uh, fifty five. 56 years old at this point. It's got some wear on it. In addition, someone decided to write in pen on the back of the card. Yeah. So that probably didn't help. Uh, So, John, have I told you the story of uh, the when I met Wahoo McDaniel at a charity event? No, I I think we all need to hear this. Okay. So uh, I lived in Asheville, North Carolina uh, in the 90s. And there was a uh, nonprofit there called the Eblen Foundation, which is now called the Eblen Charities. And the director at the time was a guy named Bill Murdoch, who I believe wrote Jack Briscoe's biography. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's always been uh, involved in pro wrestling. And once a year, uh, they would hold a a celebrity golf tournament to raise funds for the Eblen Foundation. And they would always have wrestlers. Participating. So uh, at the time, I had just broken into the business. I had somehow made you know con- contact with Bill and uh, was invited uh, to come to this. Not playing golf, but you know, as a 
uh, a, a fan. There was a reception dinner afterwards. Uh, I can't remember everyone that, that was there, but Luthez, Ricky Steamboat, uh, I think Kurt Hennig played in the golf tournament, but wasn't at the dinner. Um, and I was there with Bo James and we were, you know, looking through the list of, of who all was supposed to be there and, you know, pointing them out. And we saw one name that, uh, we couldn't find in the crowd and that was Wahoo McDaniel. So I said to Bo, where's Wahoo? Bo says, follow me. And we go to the hotel bar <laughs> and there was Wahoo and he was already in, in, uh, in a good, in a good state. Now at this time I had just broken in, I was the Duke of New York. So I was wearing my Yankees hat. Oh boy. This did not sit well with Mr. McDaniel, who was a Braves fan and uh, pretty loudly let me know about it. If we weren't at this big fancy dinner, he probably would have chopped me in the middle of the bar. But thankfully, there was some decorum and he just dressed me down verbally instead of physically. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So there, there's my Wahoo McDaniel story. And I, I worked on some shows with him. I probably met him before then on a show, uh, probably for Count Grog in the Carolinas. Uh, I don't think I ever managed against him. But uh, yeah, he was, you know, he was still working indies well into the 90s. Wow. Yeah. So this is a pretty cool non-wrestling yet wrestling yeah. related item that John bought me off eBay. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Now be sure to visit chartingtheterritories.com to see the full A Year in the Life for Jim Crockett Promotions. It features a ton of info you won't find anywhere else. And, and, you know, part of what we do at Charting the Territories is we present this information in a very unique way. We don't just list results. Uh, we don't just list title histories. We show, for example, with the title histories, we show them graphically via a timeline. So you can see how long... Each wrestler held the title, and we also use color coding to identify baby faces and heels. So you can see if the heels had the, held the titles for longer or if the baby faces did, because some territories uh, definitely made an effort to do that. We know the WWWF, of course, was based around a babyface singles champion, and their tag team titles sort of went back and forth. I don't think any side held them longer, but a lot of these NWA territories the heels have longer reigns with titles when they hold titles. For example, um, the tag team titles in some territories, heels might hold them for a few months. A babyface team wins them and loses them to a different team a couple of weeks later. So just all sorts of unique ways of looking at this information and giving you a feel for how these territories actually functioned. Now, one of the things that sets Jim Crockett promotions apart from the other territories is the number of wrestlers that made up their roster. Mm. Uh, in 1971, uh, there was an average of just over 36 wrestlers booked regularly in the territory. They typically ran three shows a night. Um, they didn't run Sundays. And in this territory, when the wrestlers worked at TV taping uh, during the week, they would not work a house show that same evening. And this is, believed to be different from how most other territories worked at the time. They would usually do the TV taping during the day, either during the week or live on Saturday morning. And then the wrestlers would shuffle off to a house show that evening. Uh, one example in Goulas, uh, in Goulas's territory, Chattanooga house shows were typically Saturday night 
and they did live TV in Chattanooga at 5 p.m. So the crew that was going to be working that house show would go to the TV studio. They do the taping. They do the live studio taping and the promos to build up the house show that night. But here, uh, and this is according to uh, Les Thatcher, who I asked about this on Twitter. And according to him, when you work TV midweek for Crockett, they had three TV tapings during the week, one on Tuesday and two on Wednesdays. And when you worked a TV taping, you did not work a house show that same night. These little pieces of information help us sort of fill in the blanks about what we know and also understanding that it was different for every territory and might have been different at different times. What 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 Crockett did in 71 might not have been how they did it in 76 and might not have been how they did it in 85. It certainly wasn't how they did it in 85. So we're slowly, piece by piece, year by year, territory by territory, figuring out how the sausage is made. Because that's always been my interest. And I think a lot of wrestling fans, they're interested in how the sausage is made. But to them, that means how matches are laid out and, and constructed. And that's the thing people really seem to be interested in. I have always been fascinated by how this all works. How if you've got a crew of 36 wrestlers, how do you figure out how to, where to send guys each and every night? And when you have three TV tapings, are yeah. each of those running in different towns? So you have to keep track of, okay, well, the high point taping we did last week is now going to be in Roanoke next week. So that means we need to book these guys into Roanoke. But what if we need them for a, a big show in, you know, Charleston? So yeah. that's what always fascinated me. And, and what we do at Charting the Territories is try and answer those questions by showing you day to day how these how these lineups are. And when there's a big feud, looking at how it plays out in different towns. If it needed to happen in Roanoke, maybe they had to cut it short in Charleston. Uh, just use that example. I was made up completely. Huh. Where so, Quick question yeah. for you. High point, just um, geographically speaking, high point, I guess. Uh, I want it, 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 central northern. Yeah, I North believe Carolina, is that where it's geographically located compared to. Yeah, so their TV tapes were Charlotte, High Point, and Raleigh. High okay. Point, I believe, is sort of in between those two in the area of Greensboro, Winston Salem. Okay, yeah, I was trying to figure so, out the so uh, yeah. All three of their weekly tapings were in the state of North Carolina, but of course, uh, the TV aired in. North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. And at times, and I don't know if this was the case in 71, but later in the decade, some markets had two separate one-hour-long TV programs. Hmm. Um, much how super, uh, how the WWF had Superstars and Challenge in the yep. mid to late 80s. I believe it was the same thing for in the mid-Atlantic years here. So I don't know if that's the case in 71, um, also, one thing, another thing I would love to learn, um, I lived, I mentioned earlier, I lived in North, in Asheville, North Carolina in the 90s. Asheville, North Carolina is in the same TV market as Greenville, South Carolina and Spartanburg, South Carolina. All three of them are small cities, but cities, but they all shared the same TV. Because I remember when I lived there, the you know the state the TV stations WLOS served all three markets, and the local news would tell you what was going on in in all three cities, and all three of those cities had weekly Crockett shows. Asheville was on Wednesdays, Greenville and Spartanburg. One of them was on Mondays, and the other was on Saturdays. So what I'm curious uh, about is how they would promote these house shows. 
If because yeah. literally every week you've got three house shows to plug off the same episode of TV. So I'm wondering how they do that. Now, of course, John, you growing up in New York, like me, in a way, it was the same thing in that the uh, TV that aired on uh, Channel 9 or Channel 11 would uh, promote the shows at the Garden, at the Nassau yeah. Coliseum, and in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Yeah. But since each of those towns were run about once a month, there wasn't necessarily the constant overlap. They might have been able to give you a hard sell for the garden for two weeks of TV. And then the following week, you know, was the was when they were plugging the next show at the Coliseum. And then the week after that was uh, New Jersey. And I always thought it was interesting, too, with the WWF TV, had you'd have you'd have the garden build up for the interviews. And then you'd have like the smaller towns. I don't know if you call them the spot shows for WWF where, you know, Finkel would break in. Yes, during during the matches, the they would have over. the breaking of audio about the Wakamako Youth Center. Yeah, or, or Ice World in Totowa, New Jersey. Right, or, or you know, stuff like that. Or, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, it's just fascinating how they're plugging all these different shows off the same TV, but then recycling those tapes and sending them in, in different markets and taping mm-hmm. all new local promos to plug completely different shows. And that's what has always fascinated me and yeah. why I have taken it upon myself to <laughs> chart the territories. Yeah. But another difference uh, between Crockett at this time and pretty much every other territory except one or two in the U.S. and Canada was the reliance on tag team matches featuring regular tag teams at the top of the cards. Now, every territory or you know, most territories had tag teams, but as we've talked about in the past, John, typically the regular full-time tag team was a heel combo, like the Assassins, the Hollywood Blondes, etc. And they would come into a territory and they would target a babyface who might, you know, go through a couple of different partners before finding the one that finally, you know, leads to the babyface's triumphing. In this territory, everybody's got a buddy mm-hmm. and all the top stars are partnered up with someone else as part of a regular tag team. Uh, they did have a singles title and occasional big singles bouts in main events. And the undercard usually consisted of singles matches involving the mid carters and the preliminary wrestlers. But by and large, the main events uh, consisted of a babyface tag team squaring off against a heel tag team. And you can see this in the rankings for the territory for 1971. Of the top 15 acts in our rankings, which are based on uh, average weekly spot ratings and the number of weeks they were to, they were uh, in the territory, either regularly teaming up or regularly as a single, out of the top 15 acts, 12 of them were tag teams. Wow. And the three singles wrestlers all of them were also in the rankings as part of a tag team. Mm-hmm. So on the babyface side, you have Nelson Royal and Paul Jones, Jerry Briscoe and Sandy Scott, George Becker and Johnny Weaver, Danny Miller and Les Thatcher, and the team of Abe Jacobs and Argentina Apollo, Vittorio Apollo. And this was probably the first year in about five or six years that the highest ranked babyface tag team would not have been Becker and Weaver. Um, when I ran that list down, they were actually in order. So the uh, top tag team based on our rankings was Nelson Royal and Paul Jones. Mm. But 
Becker and Weaver had been the top tag team in the territory for several years, probably dating all the way back to when they first started teaming up regularly in 1965. But in October of 1971, Becker was 57 years old, and from all accounts, he looked it. Uh, there are some wrestlers that, uh, you know, might be 57, but look, you know, decent. Apparently, at this point in time, Becker did not look great. Uh, and <laughs> he was insanely over, don't get me wrong, but it was just showing his age. And he ends up having his final match for Crockett in October of 1971. Now, the following year, he would make a handful of appearances on some outlaw shows where he was involved behind the scenes. And then when Eddie Einhorn started up the IWA in 75, his first couple of shows in the Carolinas, he featured Becker uh, as the, you know, the sort of the local legend mm. having a, you know, yeah. making an appearance. But Becker's run as a full timer ended in the fall of 1971. Uh, our friend David Gibb wrote a profile of Becker and his tag team partner, Johnny Weaver, that's up on the site as part of A Year in the Life. And it looks at how how the team, you know, how the team first got together, when they first got together, what they had been doing for several years, what the pattern was as far as the tag team titles were. And also looking at what Weaver was doing when not teaming with Becker. And then when Becker left, how Weaver's role changed. I think uh, David pointed out that for the first Nine and a half months of 1971, Weaver was in a tag team or a six-man tag 80% of the time. But after Becker left, Weaver was in singles 50% of the time and in tags 50% of the time. So there's a big shift towards him yeah. becoming a single star. And we'll also we also look at all the matches he had with Dory Funk Jr. Uh, when Dory, since Dory had won the NWA World Heavyweight title. So, of course, David Gibb, I always, uh, you know, jokingly refer to him as a real actual author. <laughs> but now I can also refer to him as an award-nominated yeah. real actual uh -huh. author. His ebook, How to Ace Your Comeback, was a finalist for the Best Independently Published Novella of 2023 by the Next Generation Indie Book Awards. Wow. So yeah, he's the real deal. And uh, he, you know, I I wanted to have a an actual writer doing these profiles. Um and he really knows how to turn a phrase. And and they're informative reads, but they're also enjoyable reads thanks to yeah. the uh the word stylings of yeah. David Gibbs. So if you want to check out his novella, his award nominated novella mm -hmm. how to ace your comeback or his serialized five-part story entitled tag team check out aceyourcomeback.com so we ran through the top ranked babyface tag teams but everybody loves the heels so we got to talk about the heels john yes we in do. descending order rip hawk and sweet hansen brute bernard and the missouri mauler the masked marvels who were Jim Starr and Billy Garrett, Art Nelson and Gene Anderson, Pampero Furpo and Rock Hunter. And that seems like an interesting combination. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Bill Bowman and Joe Turner and the Von Steigers, Kurt and Carl. Now, a few notes on some of these teams. Gene Anderson is teaming with Art Nelson at this time because Ole was elsewhere. 
mm-hmm. you remember last month when we talked about uh, the Dusix territory, Ole had been there early in the year. He ends up uh, working part-time for the AWA during, I think, the uh, late spring, early summer. But then he goes down to Florida and has a nice little run there for the second half of the year. Uh, the Mass Marvels, Jim Starr and Billy Garrett. And there's another connection to someone we talked about last month. Because um, when the Marvels split up here, Jim Starr leaves. Garrett actually stays. But Starr leaves and goes to Goulas, where he teams up with Tom Andrews who had been the claw for the Dusix, and they become the interns. And in another weird connection, speaking of the interns, uh, Bowman and Turner, a few years earlier, had worked as the interns in uh, for Goulas, and they're believed to have been the first team to use the the name of the interns, even Hmm. though here it's Garrett and Starr, and it would later become Starr and Andrews. Bowman and Turner are believed to be the first team to use the name the interns. We'll talk about Bowman and Turner in a little bit. But what's interesting is that when, the, when Star and Garrett finish up, Star leaves and Garrett stays. And for most of the time he's here by himself, he's advertised as the unmasked Marvel or the ex-masked Marvel. <laughs> Which is something we see a lot uh, in the Ghoulis territory. When yep. wrestlers would get unmasked, um, they would work, they would stay as a single under their real name, of course, which might not have been their real name, but then there was often the parenthetical X Green Demon number two. <laughs> yep. And so yep. we see that here. Um, and I actually believe that once Garrett finished up here later in 71, that was the end of his in ring career. Now, Furpo and Hunter split up as a team shortly before uh, Pampero left, and they had a series of matches against one another. Um, I think these were heel versus heel matches, although Furpo may have been the babyface, but Hunter stayed uh, and he continued to be a heel. So at the very least, he was a heel, and I think Furpo was also a heel, but they probably did it in such a way that if the fans were going to cheer for anyone, it would have been, oh yeah. Yeah, I can yeah, I could. I can see that. So one team on that list uh, is one that just does get does not get talked about a whole lot. Um, I think the main reason is because there is little to no footage of them together in their prime. I think there's some of one of them uh, late late in his career in 77, 78. But really, the team of Bill Bowman and Joe Turner just don't get talked about as much as they should have because they were you know, solid hands for mm-hmm. many years. They were mid-carters slash upper mid-carters in this territory and in some of the larger territories. But in places like uh, Goulas' territory or Gulf Coast, they were, you know, champions. They they were top heel teams. And their friendship dated back to the very beginning of their wrestling careers. Yeah, Bowman had actually been a sergeant in the Marines during the Korean War. But by the mid-50s, he was living in Mobile, Alabama, where his dad managed a YMCA. And it just so happened that this was the YMCA that many of the wrestlers who were working for Buddy Fuller not only worked out at, but also uh, rented rooms there. Bowman uh, ends up getting trained by Charlie Carr, but couldn't get booked by Buddy Fuller. So Bill and his friend Joe Powell, who's better known as a referee, 
they started up their own little outlaw promotion and they were <laughs> they would bill it as amateur wrestling, but it was professional style wrestling. And yeah. one of the wrestlers that that was with this promotion was Joe Turner. Um, they charged a small amount of money for fans to watch the matches, but it pretty much paid their expenses. And I don't think the wrestlers actually got paid. So that's why they call themselves amateurs. <laughs> so, uh, and they end up running a lot of shows in small towns all, all around the Gulf Coast region. And, and this seems not to have sat well with Buddy Fuller. So, no. John, you found an interview with Joe Powell. If you can, uh, from that article, tell us what, what Joe said happened uh, to him and what Buddy Fuller did to uh, yeah, try and put the kibosh on this. Yeah, like like you said, they, 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 he refers to it as like amateur wrestling cards, which sort of makes it, in, in your head, it makes it seem like, you know, collegiate Greco-Roman wrestling. Right, but, but it's, it's actually, not. yeah, and it's basically independent, you know, outlaw shows, if you want to call them that. And they ended up running like 10 different towns in Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. So it wasn't like, you know, here first, it was like, a, you know, in their backyard, but it was like eight, 10 different towns they're running. And they end up doing really well. To the point where their poppies are enough, where they get the attention of, of Buddy Fuller, and and Fuller has one of his guys, one of his stooges, you know, uh, calls Powell and offers him a job as a referee on their TV, in order to get them, you know, to to shut down their their outlaw promotion. Right. Well, what um, what what he says happened was they. Powell works as a referee and Buddy hands him an envelope and says, all right, now, now that, you know, you're not an amateur anymore, so you can't yeah. go back to work for those guys. <laughs> yeah. And I think he did the same thing with uh, Turner and maybe yeah. one or two of the others to pretty yeah. much uh, shutter the outlaw promotion. So Bowman ends up going to Louisiana for a yeah. few years while Turner is uh, tooling around mostly in the Gulf Coast. They reunite in the mid 1960s. And go to wrestle in Tennessee as the Sky Brothers, Bill and Joe. Now they're billed as half brothers, but in reality, they're they are not uh, of relation either by blood or by marriage. But Turner does have a notable uh, relative in pro wrestling. So John, who was Turner's real life brother-in-law at one point? Turner, I believe, his brother-in-law, and I think he broke him into the business uh, and may have held the Alabama version of the tag titles in 73 to Dennis Condry, I believe, yeah. is who you're talking about. Yes, Dennis Condry. In fact, when we covered uh, the early 70s in the McGurk territory, Turner and Condry were here as a masked duo, Mephisto and Dante. Ah, uh, so, uh, so, so while Bowman and Turner spent most of from the mid sixties to the mid seventies together as a team, there were times when they went their separate ways, particularly when Turner was breaking in young Dennis Condry, uh, sort of took him around with him. So the wrestling is the sky brothers. And as I mentioned earlier, they start wrestling as, as the interns in 1968, which mm -hmm. I believe was less than a year before Star and Garrett started using that gimmick as well, but uh, they were the first ones to do it. And um, as interns, they had a manager oh, in Gulf Coast. Uh, and that was the infamous yeah. Dr. Jerry Graham. Mm -hmm. Man, if I was an aspiring doctor and I had to serve a residency under Dr. Jerry Graham, <laughs> I think I'd run screaming for the hills. Yeah. Set up a, an advanced uh, liver transplant a few years in advance. <laughs> Jesus. 
But even even them them just talking about ah uh, just just the way I wish I could see this because the way they talk about he was able to just do nothing. You know, it's, it's almost the way people talk about Johnny Valentine wrestling, where he could just sit in a chair, yep, in the corner with a cigar, and just just move his head or stand up and get heat just by like just being able, you know, and one of those guys who seems like, seems to understand the wrestling business, how to draw money, how to make money, how to get heat so so well, and it makes you wonder like if he had you know, all his faculties about him at all times, just how much even more legendary, you know, yeah, le- than he, than he already is, you know, less, less is more, uh, Jim Dillon, JJ Dillon. I once talked to him at, uh, one of the Florida, um, con- fan convention things that Barry Rose puts on with Dave Penzer every year or a couple of times a year. And JJ would tell me every now and then he would do this thing where he would, reach into his uh, you know, suit pocket and pull out a piece of paper and just sort of look at it, crumple it up and put it back in his pocket. Hmm. And the fans, the, the little thing like that, for whatever reason, fans would react to things like that. Uh, wow. And he just, you know, he said he found these little innocuous ways of getting some attention, but without doing grandiose gestures that take away from what's yeah. going on in the ring. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. the simple head movements, uh, Roland Alexander, uh, from APW in California. When I worked for him in 1998, he, he always told me about Dr. Ken Ramey, how Ramey would, when, when a wrestler was thrown to the floor, Ramey would get up, take two steps toward him and then not do anything and just stand there, look at him and eventually go back to his seat. Mm. And he'd do that a couple of times. And then the third time when he, he did go over and kick the guy, the fans oh. just went ballistic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, oh, it's great. It's just the it's art of managing and that whole less is more thing, which was something I had a problem with for many years when I was managing. And eventually, you know, <laughs> got got it. I, I guessed it. <laughs> you, you get it. I love also, too, the, as, as the Sky Brothers, these two guys, goes to go back to the Sky Brothers, I love them being billed as half brothers. I think that's such a cool little little touch because when you see them together, you can see where it'd be tough to buy them as brothers. Right. But when you get them in the matching ring gear, the similar haircuts, you know, with the cowboy boots and the, I'm sold. I'm sold yeah, on them as half brothers. It's believable. Again, a little yeah, touch it. like that to yeah, to add cool. some realism so cool. to things. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about Bowman and Turner. They seem to be in, you know, a few different places at, at, you know, interesting times. I always, you know, I always picture like a Forrest Gump, like these mid-card wrestlers that were there the night, you know, uh, Ray Gunkel died or were there, you know, when something else, you know, famous happened. But Bowman and Turner were part of the crew working in Georgia uh, when when Gunkel died. Yep. And they joined All South. Uh, you know, when the whole, basically the whole crew, except for three wrestlers, all quit and went to Gunkel's new promotion. I think the first TV match was Bowman against a very young Wayne Cowan, Dutch Mantel. Oh, wow. I believe they were in the first ever uh, televised match from uh, Ann Gunkel's All South Wrestling. Interesting. I think Bowman actually, uh, after retiring, I think he settled in Atlanta too. I think it's one of the... yeah. 
ran, ran like a, a car dealership, I think, and then later moved. I'm going to say back to Gulf Coast, Pensacola. Moved maybe. back like, to Gulf Coast. And both Bowman and Turner were uh, a part of the Gulf Coast wrestlers reunions that yeah. happened years later. But Bowman's in-ring career ended in 76. And as I mentioned earlier, Turner stuck around a couple of more years. And you found a, a fascinating time capsule of a clipping from the August 24th, 1977 Selma Times in Selma, Alabama. Just mm. one of those, you know, name four people that have never been in my kitchen. Uh, just such an <laughs> odd pairing of wrestlers <laughs> facing one another. But you have Turner teaming up with Woodrow Bass, who was Jim White. And their opponents were uh, two youngsters, yeah. Mike Jackson, and who uh, a man who was billed at the time as Sweet Daddy Ritter, who, of course, mm-hmm. was Sylvester Ritter, the junkyard dog. Yeah, yeah. And actually, Mike Jackson is still wrestling today. As a matter of fact, he's going to be in the Scenic City Invitational Tournament that uh, they put on every year in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's coming in July. Yeah. I, uh, so, there's, yeah. there's no photos of Mike Jackson there, um, but just the description of him was, it's was Mike, uh, yeah. enough to, yeah. And <laughs> the timing is right. And they I, they mentioned Ritter as uh, uh, formerly from the Green Bay Packers, which was yeah, how yeah. Sylvester had always been billed. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Junkyard Dog, uh, I tweeted something out in May. It was the two-year anniversary of the story I wrote entitled The Dog uh, and a King, which um, told the never- before told story um, about junkyard dogs experiences uh, being expelled from high school in the wake of Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr.'s assassination. Yep. And it got a very nice uh, retweet and comment from Dave Meltzer. Um, oh, yes. You know, John, I'm, I'm relatively new to the, the quote unquote wrestling historian game. Of course, you've been around for a while. So to me, it's it's cool to get acknowledged. And, you know, Dave periodically retweets things of mine, and um, but to have him comment on this particular story that he had never heard of it, um, and and that he enjoyed my research, you yes. know, it's it's a good feeling oh, um, yeah, yeah. to hear oh, yeah. from the old guard of historians. Um, which you know reminds me, John, you also got a message in private from another notable wrestling historian who actually parlayed his knowledge of wrestling history into becoming a very well regarded commentator. In the yeah. 90s and 2000s. Since it was a private conversation, I don't want to name him. Uh, and if you don't want to either, I'll, I'll tell you the same person actually sent me a message as well. Um, That's fantastic. So, again, it's just really cool to hear from people like that uh, yeah. to, to say they listen to the podcast. They appreciate what you do. Uh, and in this yeah. case, uh, this person actually um, was was commenting about our Benny Ramirez story from last month on the podcast and and said he had never heard that about Betty's death, the, the plane crash. Oh. And that not oh. only did he find it interesting, but he shared that with Jeff Walton, who oh. at one point ran Benny Ramirez's fan club. And apparently Jeff hadn't heard about that either. Look at us. I feel like that Paul Rudd meme now. Look yeah. at us, guys. So Look at again, us. I don't want to name, you know, who this person was, but you know, we talked about my funny Wahoo McDaniel story earlier uh, on the podcast. I, I was reminded I, I I for many years I was a huge UFC fan. I stopped going for a while, but uh back in April I went to my first UFC in many years in Kansas City. And it reminded me of uh the time I went to one of the very early UFCs. As a matter of fact, I think it was UFC twelve, uh, eleven or twelve or thirteen. It was built around the return of Tank Abbott after the first time he had been suspended for 
whatever he was. It wasn't UFC 12. I'm looking it up now. Um, but it was the one where the finals was actually um, the person who was supposed to go to the finals ended up getting injured in the semi. So it was just Mark Coleman having the exhibition against somebody. Hmm. But uh, this was in, uh, I believe it was in Alabama. It might've been in Dothan, Alabama. I drove there with a, a friend of mine and I was sitting behind Mike Tanay. Wow. <laughs> and I had just, I had just gotten into, into, into wrestling as a manager. So I, I did try and ask him, you know, what does it take for you to plug an indie promotion on your, uh, on the WCW hotline? And I mentioned that I was working for Southern States Wrestling and Bo James. And he's like, I, I've heard of Bo James. I've heard of Southern States Wrestling. I don't know oh. if he ever did any segments on the hotline about us, but uh, I tried, <laughs> Bo. I tried to get us some plugs on the WCW hotline. It's a good, a good effort. <laughs> if we can, before we, before we move on from Bowman and turn, like, put, just to put a, put a bow on Bowman and turn. A bow on the man. A bow. Yeah. They, it's like a nun. You know, in none of their various tag team configurations, names, or gimmicks, you know, they're not going to show up on any top 25 list. Or, and they're probably, honestly, they're not going to even crack my personal top 100 list. But teams like, 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 they're, like theirs, so, so very valuable to the promotion during the 60s and 70s. And I think Les Thatcher, uh, one of their, one of their obituaries had a quote, it's like, you know, Turner and Bowman in North Carolina were more mid-card guys. But the talent that is so lacking today is a mid-card guys who can make people on their way up and still stay strong themselves. They made a lot of baby faces look very good. Right. Because you figure, especially, especially in this territory, uh, they're probably losing more often than not. Mm -hmm. um, as as we mentioned, most of the pre prelim matches were singles bouts. So a team like Bowman and Turner, they're probably, uh, you know, in the upper mid card and mid card area, putting over whoever's going to mm -hmm. be moved up to the main event the following week. And they need to keep themselves strong. Otherwise yeah. the fans will, you know, stop accepting them as competitive. So to be able to do that, to be able to lose regularly. And as we've mentioned many times, heels always lost, you know, seem to lose more often than the baby faces did. Um, but a team like that, you know, they might have lost even more often than than the norm for a heel tag team at this time. So to be able to keep themselves strong enough that when, uh, you know, if they lost, you know, two weeks ago to Jones and Royal and now they're booked against Les and Danny Miller, they, you know, they're able to still make a good showing of themselves and have the fans believing they might be able to win and being overjoyed when Danny and Les pull out the hard fought victory. Yeah, and it's like it's, it's you know it's like a catch twenty two. Like if you if you don't have solid mid card guys in that role, then you essentially have just a roster of mid card guys. If that makes right. any sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if guys just trade you know our fifty fifty booking, then no one can really rise to the top. Yep. Um, yep. So yep. to see the rest of the roster for JCP in nineteen seventy one. Be sure to check out A Year in the Life at chartingtheterritories.com. It's always fun looking through the uh, the lower halves of the cards. Uh, some interesting names pop up. Now here, between the upper mid-carders and down, there's some interesting names. We have Chris Tolis, Alberto Torres. Again, another wrestler who we talked about last month. Um, he was here at the beginning of the year. He finished up in, I think, 
February or March and went to Nebraska, where, of course, uh, were the last matches in his career when he unfortunately passed away in June of 71. Uh, but also Luther Lindsay, who we've talked about in the past as Stu Hart's uh, favorite wrestler, uh, Jim Dillon, who we talked about, Frank Morell, and uh, a whole host of others. And even in the part-timers, guys who would not be full-time, wouldn't be booked a few times a week, but would show up every now and then. Uh, there's some fascinating names. You have Ron Wright, mm. who in particular worked in um, the towns in Western North Carolina and the Northwest uh, corner of South Carolina with uh, Greenville and Spartanburg. Uh, Cause that's just a, a short drive from East Tennessee where Ron lived. So Ron Wright, um, Sonny Fargo, who of course was a referee here and a part-time wrestler, but in Tennessee was Nuthouse Fargo or Roughhouse Fargo, one of the biggest short-term draws in the history of Goulas' yeah. territory, and a young rookie babyface by the name of David Finley. Hmm. John, who do we know David Finley better as? He's better known as everyone's favorite announcer, David Crockett. Yeah. Uh, this was, he had a, a brief, you know, career in the ring, I guess at some point realized he probably wanted to work for his, you know, his father's business yeah. and figured the easiest way to get a job with a wrestling promotion was to be a wrestler. And I guess at some point realized either he realized or everybody else realized that, uh, <laughs> no, this isn't for you, young David, but let's see what, what else we can find for you. <laughs> I, I just, but. You know, and David was the first one, but we're talking about today earlier. I was thinking about, you know, Don West and just the joyous exuberance oh, of yeah. Don West and David Crockett, even more so with Don, because it was played up that he wasn't a wrestling guy, particularly yeah. early on. And so the way he reacted to, you know, seeing things, you know, for the first time ever and how he made that come across was just so different from the retired wrestler turned color commentator. Um, yep. It's just such a different point of view. And and David had that same uh, sort of lean when he was commentating. The, the guy who, you know, wouldn't tell you, well, here's what's going through the wrestler's mind and his technical blah, blah, blah. No, it's, oh my God, what's going on now? Oh my goodness. Woo. Uh, yeah. And I, I, a lot of people make fun of him now uh, a lot. When he, on, on Twitter, you see people sort of mocking his cup. But I loved it when I was a kid and I love it now. I guess there was a period, you know, where it was where I was like, Ugh, I might've rolled my eyes at it, but now it's gone full circle where I absolutely love his exuberance again. And, you know, even, even Lance and, and David Brown had the same kind of thing. Cause they were presented as guys from outside wrestling that were called yeah. in to announce these wrestling matches. Uh, Lance sort of became a regular, but, but David Brown every now and then would, would have that. What, what's going on? I don't understand this, um, <laughs> you know? And of course, and that's where the Muppet show uh, comparisons always come in with, yeah. with Memphis yeah. wrestling. Uh, and yep. Lance was, you know, the, the vo trying to be the voice of reason amongst all all this insanity going on so much insanity. Uh, and, you know, one of the, I guess the other thing about Bowman and Turner is because we don't have a whole lot of info on them. We don't have any fun stories about, you know, they're out of the ring exploits or about them, you know, body slamming a female fan or something like that. Oh. Um, you know, those are always <laughs> fun to talk about. We try and focus on, you know, the, the more serious side of things. I know the uh, latest season of dark side of the ring just premiered. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're recording oh, yeah. this a couple of days after the first episode of the fourth season aired, which was the Candido episode. 
Um, Just really heart-wrenching. Yeah, that's a tough watch. I've watched watched that episode probably 14 times from the first rough cut to the premiere. I I got the tissues out every time, Al. Yeah, it's it's just so so many sad stories. That's why we like to focus on the more interesting stories, the lighter stories or the, the, the happy endings. Uh, and just with all these wrestlers, you know, coming in and out, uh, it, it ends up like little pieces of trivia. Um, you know, did you know so-and-so worked here? Did you know Ron Wright, you know, had a few appearances for Crockett? Did you know David Crockett started as a wrestler, Dave Finley? Yeah. All these little pieces of trivia. And speaking of trivia, John... Oh. It's now time for John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Oh, baby. Yeah, let's uh, let's dig right into it. Question number one. Which longtime lady champion made her professional debut in 1949 with the nickname Slave Girl? It's going to be the, the fabulous Moolah, Lillian Ellison. The fabulous Moolah is uh, the answer listed on the card, so that is okay. correct. Question number two. Are a crotch lift and slam legal in pro wrestling? Yes. Uh, and the answer they have on the card is yes, comma, albeit uncomfortable. <laughs> but I will make you, I, you you're still right. You just, just saying yes was good enough. So you're two for two. Question number three. Whose head was shaved after being defeated by Roddy Piper in WrestleMania 3. That would be adorable Adrian Adonis. You are three for three, John. Okay. Now, the fourth question on these cards is, is labeled true or false, but it's a fill in the blank. <laughs> so, okay. the, the blank four. What? Can you repeat the question, please? Sure. Uh, it's, it's not even a question. It's just a uh, it's just a fill in the blank. It's a three okay. word sentence, and you're supposed to fill in the blank of the second word. So it's the blank four. The blank four. Do we have, uh, do we have a timer on this? Uh, no on timer, this? but you know, think about it. this is a wrestling trivia game. They might be talking about wrestlers' names. They might be talking about uh, I don't know moves or holds or I don't know something like that. The blank four. Is it the figure four? You are correct. Oh, okay. That was a, I, that's okay. a weird one. Um, yeah, especially with not, no hints. Neither hard nor easy. Uh, just so I, 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 I gave you a good Iggy. You did so, give yeah, me an. You're four for four. I, well, you also could have used the one lifeline you've got banked from a couple of months ago, but you didn't. Okay, so yeah. you still have that. Yeah. So I got that. I got that. there you go. Another perfect performance by trivia master John Boucher. <laughs> So now going back to Crockett in 71 on our website, we also list the uh, biggest feuds in the territory as measured by our FLW statistic. So for Crockett in 71, the biggest feud was Hawk and Hanson versus Paul Jones and Nelson Royal. And they had an FLW score of 
10.74. Now, FLW stands for feud length in weeks, and it's meant to approximate the length of a feud across a territory. So basically, what this means is if you took all, all their matches during the year and sort of laid them out on consecutive nights, it would have taken up about 10 straight weeks. Um, amongst the various towns, remember they're running three shows a night. So this, you know, sort of means they, they have a three week run in all of those towns, you know, three weeks mm. on the first town in on Monday nights and then the following town for three weeks and then three more weeks in the third town. So one out of every five times that Hawk and Hansen were booked during the year, their opponents were Jones and Royal. That's a lot. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. Both these teams, Hawk and Hansen had been, you know, homesteaders for years. And Jones and Royal at this point had been a regular team for Crockett for a few years. So they had already faced one another probably dozens of times before 1971, let alone, you know, how many times they did it in 71. So it's fascinating yeah. to me how they can keep these things fresh. And one of the ways they do it, of course, is because they have so many different markets that they go into. They're running 15 shows a week. Of those, I think 11 to 12 are major weekly cities. And then the rest are spot towns or the once a month big shows in Greensboro or Winston-Salem or um, uh, one of the towns in Virginia. Hampton, Virginia just opened up an 11,000 seat arena in 71 and they ran it a few times. But, you know, how they do this week after week for years straight is fascinating to me. So what we do on the site is we look at how these feuds progressed in a specific city in the territory. And for this feud, Hawk and Hanson versus Jones and Royal, I actually did it for two different cities. And Greenville, South Carolina, their feud in 71 took place from... Uh, late December 1970 through early February of 71. And then in Columbia, South Carolina, it wasn't until July that they're feuding there. So again, this means that it's not like the feud was kickstarted by an angle on TV that bicycled around the territory over several weeks. Here, it has to have been a completely different angle to kick things off that, that might have been on one of the three TVs that, mm. you know, one of them aired in Greenville in in December. And then one of the other two TV tapings months later, they did an angle and brought it to Columbia. Interesting. That's just sort of the things I, you know, I'm trying to figure out. But the, and, and the feud itself also played out quite differently. The sequence of matches and the stipulations were different between those two cities. It wasn't like the WWF of the 80s where they're running the same matches with the same finishes night after night for like a couple of months straight here there, you know, each town has its own narrative and it, it could play out differently. Some, sometimes they might wrestle one another once and then not, not face each other, you know, the rest of the year in other towns, it's five or six, you know, weeks out of a two or three month period of time. Yeah, that's, and so I love like the difference, you know, different stipulations. Like one, like uh, Columbia has like you know there was a, a pile driver legal stipulation, right? For one and it was born, it, it was born out of a, the week before. Before, yeah, the babyface yeah. is one, but after the match, I think Hawk, uh, Rip Hawk, pile drove either Paul Jones or Nelson Royal. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so that built you know to the the stipulation the following week. And again, when you do it that way, when the angles to set up the stipulations happen at house shows, you're not tied to a TV angle. Mm, yep. And again, Smart. this way, if it's if the feud draws better in some towns or has more heat in some than others, you can keep it going. You can have a creative finish just for that town to build up a new stipulation for the following week. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, yeah, but and in this feud, there is one wrestler who underwent a couple of big changes over the course of his career. We first talked about Nelson Royal on this podcast early on uh, in our uh, doing this uh, when he had a run for Leroy McGurk as Mr. Nelson Royal. Described as a pompous, overbearing Englishman in tails and top hat. After his run with McGurk ended in early 1965, he went to work for Jim Crockett. At first, he was a heel, teaming up with the Viking, uh, Robert Morse. But by the summer of 65, he was a babyface, and he'd worked for Crockett for most of the next decade. Yeah. So uh... Nelson's earliest documented matches were in 1955, Mm -hmm. and his last matches were in 1989. (laughs) So that's a nice... 34-year run. And I'm also <laughs> going to say, even a decade after that, in 1999, when I met him in Charlotte, uh, he was still in phenomenal shape, and he wanted me to punch him in the stomach to show. To show <laughs> me how, how in good shape he was. <laughs> I was This is my thing for Nelson Royal. One of the things I've always thought about him. And I was going to mention this at the near the end of us talking about him, because you, but because you mentioned him later later in life. Uh, I'll mention it now. He's always one of the, he's one of those guys who I always thought, you know, we, we talk about guys who, who get up there in age, you know, and they, they, they lose their hair, they get the comb over, but they're still in good shape. And then you know, they, they throw a mask on them and they right. get another few I years. I always thought Nelson Royal would be a perfect, a perfect guy to do that with, you know, to do uh, like a, the grappler, t- that type of yeah. Let's do one of those, yeah. Even if, even if he did it in his own promotion, you know, that way he doesn't look like he's pushing himself as a you know a sixty year old guy, you know. Yeah, I also uh, think I, I believe he had a somewhat successful business outside of wrestling, yeah. so so yeah. he, he didn't necessarily feel the need to stay until he absolutely couldn't anymore. Um, True, but you know he's most associated with Crockett, but like so many other wrestlers, he crisscrossed North America for many years. Um, we mentioned he was Mr. Nelson Royal for McGurk, okay. but typically uh, when he did that gimmick, he was billed as Sir Nelson Royal or Lord Nelson Royal. Um, <laughs> and we don't, yeah, we don't have any footage of Royal when he was portraying a Royal. I wish he did. But you, you did curate a playlist of YouTube footage of Nelson uh, dating from the mid seventies through the late eighties. And of course we will put this up on YouTube as a playlist. So you can uh, watch all of these matches yourself, but John, tell us a, a little bit about what you found on the YouTube for Nelson Royal. My, my favorite one, I'll talk about this one first. I'm not going chronologically going in, 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 in my favorites. Uh, this one's from starts with a, a promo from Mondo Guerrero, who looks incredible here, he's got like a sunglasses, a mustache thing going. It looks awesome, and he's pre- preparing for a match against Nelson Royal. And, and much like us, he has been doing some research on him. Uh, and they show a film of Nelson Royal wrestling the Dynamite Kid in Stampede. I think this is July 
79. We joined it in progress about 30 minutes in of a two out of three falls match, and we get to hear get to hear some Ed Whalen on commentary as well as uh, Mondo and, and Hank Renner from San Francisco talking about the match. And what I what I I really liked what I see here. These two guys work really really well together, like 20 20 year old dynamite kid and Nelson Royal more than more than twice his age uh, that, doing their yeah, and that's probably a thing that. If they'd wrestled one another two years earlier, it wouldn't have worked because Dynamite wasn't yep. there. And if it had been two years later, it probably wouldn't have worked because Nelson probably would have lost a yeah. couple of steps. So 79 is probably the perfect time, maybe the only time you could do yeah. that. And they're doing, you know, they're doing their take here on, you know, the grizzled vet versus the young upstart. You know, Nelson Royal, like Nelson Royal makes Dynamite look like a million bucks, which I'm not surprised. That's his job. That's his role as the touring champion. And Dynamite, Dynamite makes Nelson Royal look really good and puts on, from what we see here, the short clip. It's a really, really exciting match. And to be to be brutally honest, to be frank, a lot of the Nelson Royal stuff that's out there that you'll see might not be that exciting for a modern fan who's not used to that sort of pace right. to watch. But this is this is an exciting, exciting little match here. And I found something in, in uh, uh, his ob- Observer obituary, and Dave talks about this, um, where Stu Hart was able to persuade Leroy McGurk who controlled the belt at that time to let Dynamite uh, become right. the new champion? Uh, do you know? Have you heard the story already? I've heard a little bit of it, but uh, uh, for our listeners, they, uh, he was he was you know all prepped. The Stampede locker room had you know champagne chills in the in the in the in the back, waiting for July of '79 when or Stampede week when Nelson Royal was scheduled to show up, and then you know. And go on a week-long tour where the title was set to change on Friday at the in Calgary. And according to Dynamite Kid in his autobiography, Nelson says to him, "Don't take it personally, Tom. I think you're a great wrestler, but I'm not going to lose this belt to you." <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, what behind the scenes is going on was like relations between Nelson Royal and McGurk had gotten bad. Uh, so bad. Uh, well, and this is also bad. remember McGurk in July of 1979 has a whole host of problems because this oh. is uh, two months uh, before the split with Watt. So it's probably already there's probably already stuff going on behind the scenes. A lot going on for McGurk at this point. Um, and and Royal, you know, claimed that he was just refusing to lose just to piss off. McGurk and like his, his it's like if, if, if that's at the point where if McGurk wanted him to do something, he would just do the opposite, whatever it was. So Royal, you know, it got to the point where it's like he just simply refused to drop the title to anyone and never did, you know, and they yeah. worked, they worked matches all week with non finishes and whatever problems there may have been, you know, between them, you know, uh, been in the locker room were never, never taken in into the ranks they by most accounts all of the matches were great 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 and 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 dynamite in his book like years later it seems like he accepted that understanding the business as an older guy he accepted that what 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 nelson was doing understood what nelson royal was doing Uh, another reason uh, another reason that match might have not have been able to happen a few years later is a few years later dynamite probably wouldn't have been okay 
with Nelson saying, uh, it doesn't work for me, kid. <laughs> yeah. I don't Imagine, know you know, 80, 1985 or 1986 dynamite. Ooh, baby. Yeah, that would have ended well. Um, so, but. yeah, so that's uh, Nelson Royal versus Dynamite Kid. And, and John, you've got a few other uh, matches and clips on YouTube. So real quick, uh, just sort of uh, point by point, tell us uh, what they can find on our playlist on our YouTube channel. Yeah, I've got a, a Nelson Royal Pez Watley match from UWA TV, the Luzes Outlaw promotion, March 76. Really cool five minute match. Uh, just sort of like babyface versus babyface, a scientific match. If you like that sort of stuff, uh, it holds up 50 years later. I think, uh, I really recommend this one second only to the first one I talked about. Um, Nelson Royal Al Madrill in Japan. It's a quick one here. Nothing special. Kind of, kind of interesting to see this. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, Nelson Royal Tully Blanchard which is Tully TV title, also having the $10,000 in the briefcase. Nelson has some cool, like a little Van Dyke goatee thing going on here. Um, another five-minute, a perfect Crockett 87 TV match. Uh, you know, if, if, that's your, if that's your thing, you'll love this. And, of course, I've got Nelson Royal explaining what a bunkhouse stampede match is. Because in, everyone case, in case you've here. forgotten. <laughs> go through that. If you hear, I don't know if you guys can hear it, but there's uh there are fire trucks racing past my uh my condo. So if you hear something like that in the background, that's what it is. I think they I think they're gone now, but uh, they were passing passing not far from me. Um, there's a great article by Mike Mooneyham. We'll post a link to it on Twitter. One of the interesting things to me from that article was that uh, uh, Dory Funk Jr was quoted as saying that Nelson Royal liked Texas so much when he went to work for the Funks in the uh, early 60s that he ended up becoming a cowboy for real. Nelson Nelson, uh, owned a Western wear store in Mooresville, North Carolina, which is just north of Charlotte, from 1967 to his death, and the store still stands today. And it's called, even to this day, 20 years after his passing, the store is called Nelson Royal's Work and Western Wear Boots and Salary. Yeah. If I can, if if if, if we have time, I will, if I could go back to Dory um, really quickly for a quick, quick, funny story uh, that I, uh, I made note of. Like, he, he worked for Dory early 60s, still as... Uh, Sir Nelson Royal. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is just a really funny story. Nowadays, everyone bemoans how kayfabe is dead. and You have guys who are sworn enemies on TV being buddy-buddy on social media. Um, but, you know, all the way back in 1962, you had Nelson Royal, you know, who, who was the, like into the, the cowboy rodeo stuff in, in real life in Amarillo working a British nobleman gimmick. And one of the problems was that he would always go to the local rodeos, you know, and as you might imagine, there was some crossover between wrestling fans and rodeo fans in Amarillo in the early 60s. So Nelson Royal, you know, being seen slumming it at the rodeo didn't really jive with his on-screen TV role at the time, which I thought was always a funny, funny, funny thing to have happened. Yeah. And uh, John, you also dug up a newspaper clipping from February 1961 in Corpus Christi. Texas, so that's East Texas, where Nelson's opponent for the evening, Jet Monroe, had a really bad night. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, uh, uh, apparently uh, Jet Monroe had a little little heat in the match. Uh, and as, as, as is noted in the article, the audience responded passionately when he fell out of the ring. 
and he acquired a deep gash in his hand that required 18 stitches. And this is the thing that got me in the last paragraph. Homicide detectives arrested someone, a 15-year-old man, as a suspect. It's just homicide detectives getting involved, which is surprising to, to read. Yeah, I don't know why if they were just the first ones on the scene or what, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, he fell out of the ring and was attacked by a fan and 15 stitches in your hand. Ooh, yeah. Uh, that sounds rough. Yeah. Uh, a Year in the Life on ChartingTheTerritories.com, as I mentioned earlier, also has title histories for JCP, the territory fact sheet showing you a map of the territory, showing you which uh, where the most regularly run towns are statistics uh, like win-loss percentages by spot on the card, the size of the roster, and how they're broken down. Uh, also, 21 documented attendance figures for the territory, including what I think was the first time they drew more than 10,000 outside of Charlotte. They had done it a couple of times prior uh, in Charlotte when they ran a larger venue, the Charlotte Coliseum. But... Uh, for the first time, a town other than Charlotte uh, hit the 10,000 attendance mark. So you can read about oh. that on our site. Um, it's a sad fact that for most territories in this era, we don't have attendance figures for more than just a, a small fraction of the house shows. However, next month on Charting the Territories, we're going to look at a promotion for which we have a significant number of attendance and gate figures. Ooh, but as you'll see, that doesn't necessarily mean we know what they actually drew. Yes, it's another edition of Al's favorite game. Everything in wrestling might be a lie. And it comes <laughs> next month when we go to a place that had at one point been inhabited by Dorothy and Toto. Ooh, odd. Yes, uh, so we'll be in Kansas and I'll be uh, in Iowa in July at the uh, Tragos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend. Ooh, and uh, I just uh, set it up where I will also have a table, uh, a vendor table um, during the weekend. And I will be selling copies of my two books. Oh, cool. So if you want to buy a copy in person, come to Waterloo, Iowa in July for the Tregos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah, as always, we hope you learned lots of new things this month. John and I are constantly learning new things about wrestling and sometimes about life in general. And each <laughs> month we both share one of those things with you on a segment called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, earlier we brought you out of the Dark Side of the Ring, brought that up earlier. So one of the, one of the subjects this season is Adrian Adonis. Um, I don't think what, I, what I'm sharing here is anything that's specifically mentioned on the show, so I don't think I'm violating my NDA here or anything. And, and if it is, maybe we can just consider this promotion of the episode. Um, so Adonis, you know, you, most people probably he's a decent amateur high school wrestler. I don't think he was, you know, amateur. I don't think he was the, the, the hooker of Luthez or level or Jack Briscoe or Bob Roop or anything, but he, he could he could take care of himself. Uh and when he worked in Amarillo, 1978, uh, I'm not sure exact when the changeover was from the Funks to Mulligan and Murdoch, but nonetheless, Amarillo 78, they had Adonis and he was doing the, the gimmick of, uh, accepting, you know, shoot challenges from audience members. Okay. Um, so I had heard of Adonis 
having done that there. But this month I learned that this was how Terry Daniels initially got his foot in the door of the wrestling business. He challenged Adonis and was able to hold his own enough to the point where someone somewhere in the locker room saw something and it and got him started. Um, Terry Daniels listeners of listeners of ours who grew up near us will probably remember Terry Daniels as the premier member of Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps. And that's interesting because there's another wrestler who got his start by answering an open challenge from Bob Roop in Jim Crockett Promotions. Huh. Who is also tied in with Sergeant Slaughter. Oh, I think I know who it is. Can I guess? Who is it? Yeah, go for it. Is it Don Carnotal? It is. Boom. So that's fascinating that both Carnotal and Terry are linked to Slaughter uh, and both got their start by answering these grandstand challenges. Yeah. Interesting. Five for five. Yeah. Oh, I, that wasn't, no, that wasn't part of the game. <laughs> that doesn't count. No, it doesn't count. Sorry. So I learned a little more about Ray Vilmer. Uh, we've talked about oh. Ray previously on the podcast. Yeah. He was part of my wrestling history mystery where I revealed that he wrestled uh, under a mask as Mr. Zabo uh, for McGurk in 1963 and was injured, uh, broke his hand when a match against Luthez uh, broke down. But apparently that wasn't the only uh, trouble Ray got in in the early 60s because the following year, Ray, along with the Von Brauners, Saul Weingroff, and Ike Eakins, talk about a motley crew right there, <laughs> um, they started an outlaw promotion in Florida and they got Pat O'Hara uh, to go with them. Pat had been uh, promoting uh, some shows on the western coast of Florida for CWF since at least 1951, but he joined up with this new group that started in January 64. Huh. Um, to the surprise of no one, it it didn't last long and it went the way uh, most of these things go with one or more lawsuits. Uh, in this case, Florida wrestling incorporated, which was the legal name of this outlaw promotion uh, of, of which Ray Vilmer was listed as president sued O'Hara for over $200,000 in May of 1964. Mm. John, $200,000 in 1964 is the equivalent of about $1.95 million today. Oh, geez. So an outlaw promotion running a handful of shows for a couple of months is now looking <laughs> for almost you know $2 million in today's dollars. Uh, basically, O'Hara had severed ties with the new group in April and went back to being a local promoter for uh, Eddie or uh, Cowboy Latrall or whoever's running CWF in 64. The suit claimed that O'Hara not only embezzled money, but also transferred physical assets owned by the corporation to his own use, which he then, in theory, used for the CWF shows he promoted. Hmm. Um, the suit was thrown out and refiled the following year, but no info. I, I haven't found any info on if there was a resolution to this or not, but... Uh, yeah, Ray Vilmer, towards the end of his career, um, you know, was was uh, getting getting himself in some situations. Uh, Oof. Yeah, challenge challenging Luthez and ending up getting his hand broken, uh, and then trying to start an outlaw group against Eddie Graham. And I guess he's lucky he didn't get anything broken from that. 
Yeah, geez. Although that's why, well, if you have Ike Eakins as part of your outlaw group, I don't think anyone's going to mess with you. True. Good point. So that's probably, we talked about Ike on this podcast. Was it last year or maybe even before that, Mm -hmm. uh, that he was believed to have been brought into the McGurk territory specifically to, you know, murder, death, kill Jack (laughs) Don. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little of the fun stuff we love talking about, even though we try and focus on the good. There's a little bit of the down and dirty. Um, For more of this stuff and a lot of things we've talked about this month on the podcast, I'll post uh, I'll post links or clips of some of these things. So be sure to follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling, Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And of course, uh, the new book covering McGurk's territory from 74 through 76 is now available worldwide on Amazon and Perhaps by the time you listen to this, I'll have some in stock uh, to sell on my own through the website as well. I'm expecting them uh, when I get back from Vegas on June 11th. So by the middle of June should be something on the site if you want to order directly from me. Uh, So, John, uh, where can our listeners find you on Twitter and where can they see uh, uh, some of your hard work? Oh, just Twitter. Uh, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R uh, lots of wrestling stuff uh, follow me there please yeah. um, and uh, John of course was one of the many folks uh, working behind the scenes to make Dark Side of the Ring as accurate as possible trying doing my best like yeah. I said if, like I said last month if there's anything on there you love and agree with that is all my doing if there is something you disagree with or find inaccurate it's got nothing to do with me. And this, I that's, very, that's, a, that's a very Bill Watts-like statement. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, if the booking went really well, uh, he takes full credit for it. If it goes poorly, well, that was Robley's fault or Ernie yeah, Ladd's fault or whoever his booker was. <laughs> Robley. It's all Buck Robley. So there you go. So, yeah. So, John, we'll, we'll blame this on Buck Robley. If uh, there are Please things do. on Dark Side of the Ring that, that don't quite jibe, it's, it's Buck Robley's fault from the grave. Don't call me, don't call me yellow. Yes, the uh, Charting the Territories podcast comes out the second Thursday of each and every month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. For uh, myself and for John Boucher, uh, thank you so much for listening. And as I mentioned earlier, next month we are uh, going to head to Kansas and take a look at Heart of America in 1971. See you next month in Kansas City, baby.